0: The book of Zephaniah begins, like many of the other minor prophets, begins with judgment, uh, judgment of God, and use this phrase, day of the Lord, which refers to both judgment and salvation coming on the same day, and a lot of the minor prophets use this phrase, day of the Lord. Zephaniah uses it the most. The day of the Lord is a a major theme for our minor prophet, uh, Zephaniah, and uh, we had we had worked up to uh, chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. So I'll read those verses again and, and uh, finish our comments there. And the, the, the call is to repent. And so if you, if you see that in, in verse 3, seek the Lord, all you humble of the land, is basically a call uh, to repentance. And then we'll move on to the next section, which is chapter 2, verses 4 through, four through 15. But I just wanted to catch us up to speed and where we were. So Zephaniah chapter 2, gather together, yes gather, O shameless nation, before the decree takes effect, before the day passes away like chaff, before there comes upon you the burning anger of the Lord, before there comes upon you the day of the anger of the Lord. Seek the Lord, all you humble of the land, who do his just commands. Seek righteousness, seek humility, perhaps you may be hidden on the day of the anger of the Lord. So that far, um, we know that The hope is given to us in the Lord God, despite all these verses, these prior verses about anger and about judgment and wrath of God to come. There's a refuge available within the holy God himself. He says, seek the Lord, Uh, seek me. So hope is available to anyone who would turn from their wrongdoing, humble themselves, and seek the Lord God by trusting him to forgive and to cleanse. Consider these ancient people that we've been studying. Even after Babylon attacked and destroyed, and took them captive there was still a future hope god had long ago revealed himself as a patient god a god of mercy and grace as well as being the god who is jealous a god of justice in uh, exodus 34 verses 6 and 7 we read the lord talking about himself his character the lord passed before him before moses and proclaimed the lord the lord a god of merciful god merciful and gracious slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation, Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7. So the wrath of God and his mercy meet at the cross of Jesus Christ, where we idolaters find glorious hope of forgiveness and permanent refuge by faith. The terrible depiction of God's wrath we saw back in Zephaniah chapter 1, verses 15 to 18, is nothing compared to the ultimate outpouring of God's wrath on his own son on the cross because he bore our sins. So on that dark and distressing day of the Lord, which we could call you know, the day of crucifixion, Jesus took the full force of the wrath of God upon himself, and that's despite the fact that he himself was innocent, Jesus was the only one who had always obeyed God's just commands and sought his righteousness. The things we're called to do here in verse 3, Zephaniah 2, verse 3. So he was the only one who truly walked humbly with his God and never went after idols, yet at the cross, the righteous son of God was sacrificed like a silent sheep before his slaughterers. His blood poured down to the ground from the wounds on his hands and feet. Zephaniah 1, remember that phrase, blood poured out like dust. It's a reference to the wrath of God even at the cross of Jesus. It shows the awfulness of God's judgment and the might of his love and rescue of us at the same time. So when we are told in verse 3 to flee or to seek the Lord, to seek righteousness, to seek humility, that perhaps you may be hidden on the day of the anger of the Lord, it is a call to us to run to the cross. That Christ is the only refuge who will endure the coming day of God's wrath. Paul writes in Romans 8.1, there's No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So Christ's perfect living is credited to us by his grace alone. He is a refuge that's safe against the fiercest storm. Remember we were talking about how our tornado siren is similar to the message of the book of Zephaniah. The storm of God's tornado, the storm of God's final judgment is coming. The resurrection of Jesus is the guarantee of our safety in that. After Jesus took all the wrath of God, that was um deserved by us he was buried and then by god raised from the dead in order to prove to all creation that his sacrifice had been sufficient for all of us instead of think of it this way instead of you having to figure out how to relate to god you didn't have a bible you didn't have any preachers and trying to figure out how to relate to god and you give god some sacrifice maybe the first fruits of your vegetables from your garden And then you God give give God more. I think we should give God more. We should give God maybe half of the vegetables in our garden. Let's give him all the vegetables in our garden. Let's give him all of our animals. Let's give him our house and everything. Let's lay down before the Lord. What more could we give? You turn to your spouse and you say, I think we should give our firstborn child. I think, well, you know, it's either that or we all die. So, you know, let's do, instead of trying to figure out How to relate to this God and offer your firstborn child to your God in vain to attempt to get your God to bless you. We actually have a God who gave his firstborn son for you. The beauty of the reverse of of the gospel ought to stand out to us when we think of it in that perspective. God gave his firstborn in order to bless us. So since God loves us and loves us enough to pay such a cost for our restoration, how will this God not also give us everything we need in this life um, for <clears throat> Paul wrote in Romans 8.31, What then shall we say to these things? These things being God has justified and glorified us. If God is for us, who can be against us? God who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? So that same Jesus now sits at the Father's right hand, And when we appear before God to give account of our lives, we have a powerful advocate, even Jesus Christ, who will stand and speak on our behalf. Jesus will speak up and say that he died for our sins, that the outpouring of the wrath of God for our sins is finished. The debt has been paid in full. There's no more wrath of God to be paid out. And so we'll be welcomed into the glorious presence of God the Father for the sake of Jesus. God the Father is a just judge, and so he will be delighted to receive us based on Jesus' death for our sins. And Jesus' life will be counted as our record. His good actions counted as our good actions. However, for those who trust in their own efforts, there will be nowhere to run and nowhere to hide from the terrible wrath of the day of the Lord. Just a side comment before we move on then to the next section, verse 4 and following. If you study the uh, teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ in the New Testament, you know, like a red-letter Bible-type idea, the actual statements of Jesus, 1,800 verses one-third of those have to do with hell. So let that sink in. Um, The message of Zephaniah seems sobering to us, and that's good, but it's similar to a lot of the minor prophets. There's this huge wrath of God, judgment of God dynamic, and then leading towards restoration. And Jesus, who is himself the Savior, filled with mercy and grace, one-third of the verses we have quoted of his statements have to do with hell. Pretty significant message, so... All right, we move on now. We get to use the map on your backside. So we're on chapter 2, verse 4 and following. And I'd like to make a few comments before I read verses 4 through 7, then make some comments, read verse 8, and so on, go on like that. So uh, if you look at your handout um, outline, you'll find God's judgment against nations in Jerusalem. So that's our section, chapter 2, 4, up to 3, 8. And now we're talking about nations, various nations, north, south, east, and west. We're going to start to the west. Nations to the west were... The Philistines. So now if you um, turn over and look at your map, find Jerusalem, star in the middle. I don't remember if I circled it on your version, but you find Jerusalem in the middle of your page. And going west is to your left. Okay. So when you, you should read the large capital letters, Philistine states. That's the Philistine area. And so what it was is a collection of five cities. You have three of them on your map. I should have written the other ones in. Gaza, see it along the lake, along the sea. Ashkelon, Ashdod, and there's two more north of that, Gath and Ekron. In that, in that slight gray area there, you, should, you could also write it in if you want to. Gath and Ekron, E-K-R-O-N. We're going to read those in a moment. So that's west of Jerusalem, west of, of Judah. And so that's our first section. Uh, normally, it would take a long time to capture a city because the first step is to surround the city, and cut off all supplies. Anybody who's coming in, anybody who's leaving, you can't have that. Okay, But since they already have supplies in the city, they have quite a lot of supplies in the city, and they may even have gardens in the city to grow more supplies. And they have animals in the city, and they could continue to give birth to more animals. It takes a while. You have to starve them out for months and months and months and months in order to weaken them. But what's interesting about verse 4, again, I want to make comments first and then read it to you, Verse 4 will say that the battle began at sunrise and is done by noon. That's a rather rapid war in the ancient world. Okay? Verse 5 says the destruction would continue until there are no inhabitants left. Verse 6 will say that the whole area would be wiped out, leaving the homeland of the Philistines to be so desolate and deserted it's now used as grazing fields for shepherds with folds and flocks of sheep. Verse 7 will tell us who the shepherds were, the remnant of Judah, interestingly. The remnant of Judah become the shepherds in the area of the Philistines. Yes, finally, the, um, the people of God would occupy the lands that God had long ago promised to Abraham, but had not yet fully possessed. And so now I'll read verses 4 to 7. You're prepared to take this in now. Verse 4, chapter, Zephaniah 2, verse 4. For Gaza shall be deserted, Ashkelon shall become a desolation, Ashdod's people shall be driven out at noon, And Ekron shall be uprooted. Woe to you, inhabitants of the seacoast, you nation of the Cherethites. It's either the very same as the Philistines or a subset or a close neighbor of the Philistines, the Cherethites. The word of the Lord is against you, O Canaan, land of the Philistines, and I will destroy you until no inhabitant is left. And you, O seacoast, shall be pastures with meadows for shepherds and folds for flocks. The seacoast shall become the possession of the remnant of the house of Judah, On which they shall graze, and in the houses of Ashkelon they shall lie down at evening. For the Lord their God will be mindful of them and restore their fortunes. So, um, God's judgment against nations, and yet his restoration already hinted at there for his people. Um, Then we move on to section um, 2, chapter 2, 8 through 11. Nations now going to the east, so if you're looking at your map, Uh, From Jerusalem, now go to your right, or to the east. Looking down below, it says, Kingdom of Moab. And a little bit higher on your page, middle of the page, it says, Kingdom of Ammon. So Moab a little bit down, Ammon a little bit higher, and they're both to the east. So that's what verses 8 through 11 are talking about. The next nations are two descendants of Lot, uh, Moab, Ammon, who would share the same fate to become perpetual salt pits where nothing would grow. So I'll read this, verses 8 through 11. I have heard the taunts or the um, you know, um, boasts of Moab and the revilings of the Ammonites, how they have taunted my people and made boasts against their territory. Therefore, as I live, declares the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Moab shall become like Sodom and the Ammonites like Gomorrah, a land possessed by nettles and salt pits and a waste forever. The remnant of my people shall plunder them, and the survivors of my nation shall possess them. This shall be their lot in return for their pride because they taunted and boasted against the people of the Lord of hosts. The Lord will be awesome against them and he will famish all the gods of the earth and to him shall bow down each in its place all the lands of the nations. So there's verses 8 through 11, all the countries to the east. We've seen west, we've seen east. Now we move on. The nations listed to the south first and then to the north. So to the south, the nation of Cush or Egypt or uh, Ethiopia, somewhere in the, in the further south was the land of Cush. And according to verse 12, they faced destruction by the sword. It's short and sweet. Listen to this. Everything to the south taken care of in these words. You also, O Cushites, shall be slain by the sword. <laughs> Period. Okay? The longest statement is reserved for the nation in the last point of the compass. If you notice, we're going north, south, east, and west, but in a different order. We went west, we went east, we went south. Now we're going north. So if you're looking on your map, you have to go all the way to the very top of your page where you see the word Assyrian Empire, kind of partly crossed off. That's the north, of course. Beyond our map is Assyria further to the north. And up there is the city of Nineveh. Remember Nineveh, the capital city of Assyria? We've studied a couple times in the Minor Prophets. So this longest statement now is given to that north Uh, Who's in the north? Verse 13 will tell us Assyria is in the north. Let me read verse 13 now. And he will stretch out his hand against the north and destroy Assyria, and he will make Nineveh a desolation, a dry waste like the desert. So Assyria is Israel's classic enemy at this time. The capital city of Assyria called Nineveh, which we studied before, will be turned into a desert. One of the largest cities in the ancient world will become a ruin Along the lines of a desert. Imagine it. New York City becomes nothing but an open field for sheep to graze. Like, what would it take to make that happen? Uh, the only beings living in Nineveh would be the kind of scavenger birds and the kind of scavenger beasts that only live in desert places where the owls live. Uh, verse 14 Herds shall lie down in their midst, her midst, her being the city of Nineveh. Herds shall lie down in her midst, all kinds of beasts, even the owl. And the hedgehog shall lodge in her capitals. A voice shall hoot in the window. Devastation will be on the threshold, for her cedar work will be laid bare. As soon as you say owl, you know this is some desolate place. It's like imagine the start of a movie and you see bats flying around. Right? What are they trying to say to you? They're trying to say this is a dark place, it's nocturnal, there's bad stuff happening here. That gives the vibe pretty quickly to see a bat. Same thing for an owl. As soon as you say owl, it's like this place has not been inhabited for a while, right? The vibrant city becomes a ghost town, silent except for the hooting of the owl in the window, poetically. Why? Verse 15 gives us the answer, last over this section. This is the exultant city. Remember Nineveh? There's the city that exalted itself, praised itself, said, hey, we're awesome. Listen to this statement, it's shocking. This is the exultant city that lives securely, that said in her heart, I am, and there is no one else. What a desolation she has become, a lair for wild beasts. Everyone who passes by her hisses and shakes his fist. What have we seen in chapter 2? The countries to the west, to the east, to the south, and to the north of Judah will all face a proper penalty for their sins or foreshadowing of a much future, greater day of the Lord when his final judgment would come on all nations. And what is the sin that's in common to all of the countries, north, south, east, and west? Pride. Let me just quickly demonstrate that to you. Verse 8, Moab and Ammon made boasts. Verse 10, Moab and Ammon shall be destroyed in return for their pride because they taunted and boasted against the people of the Lord of hosts. And then verse 15, where the nation of Assyria, the city of Nineveh said, I am, and there is no one else. They're so prideful that they literally think of themselves as God. Who says, I am? Only the Lord God says, I am. And in Isaiah, he literally says, I am, and there is no one else. They take the statement of God on their own lips. In fact, The Lord God in the story of the burning bush with Moses in Exodus 3, 13 to 15, um, makes this statement, I am. Who should I say sends me? Tell them I am sends you. They were challenging the Lord God by making this statement. The whole city of Nineveh was saying, I am and there's no one else. You're not God, we're God. Eventually, God would challenge the statement of theirs, which is what we see here, and turning them into a desert. So we notice something different when... God judges the other nations, north, south, east, and west. And when God judges his own nations, and in the middle, in the middle of your map, Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem, there's something different. What is it that's different? I'll point it out to you. When the other nations were judged by God, they're gone forever. For example, verse 9 of chapter 2 Moab shall become like Sodom, a waste how long? A eh, good two years, a good couple decades, 100 years. No, a waste forever. Those nations were never restored to a position of power. But the difference with God's own people is, when he judges the nation of Judah, a small number of people survive, and God calls that remaining group of people a remnant, and the remnant would eventually grow and take possession of the property that previously belonged to other nations. For example, chapter 2, verse 5, that the Lord speaks to the land of the Philistines and says, O Canaan, land of the Philistines, I will destroy you. See that in chapter 2, 5? This term, Canaan, reminds us as Bible students that this same land, the land of Canaan, God swore to give Abraham's descendants who would inhabit the land of Canaan. Just a quick review, Genesis 12, 5-7, Abram took Sarah's wife and Lot his brother's son and all their possessions that they had gathered and the people that they had acquired in Haran and they set out to go to the land of Canaan, when they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place of Shechem, to the Oak of Morah, and at that time the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. Genesis twelve five through 7. So as soon as you hear the word Canaan, that whole backstory floods into your mind, right? The, the same Lord God, as the shepherd of the people, would once again drive out the enemies, just like he drove out the original enemies, the Canaanites. This time it's the Philippines. Canaanites, Philippines, Philistines, whoever. You know, I'm going to drive them out in front of you. The land will be yours. Whoever's in there, I'm going to drive them out. God's people could once again graze. He's the shepherd. They're the sheep they need to graze. Sheep only graze when they're calm. If they're running around because there's an enemy, they can't graze. So they will graze. And in fact, at evening, in the houses of Ashkelon, they will lie down. Remember we read that in verse seven, chapter 2, verse 7? Why? For the Lord their God will be mindful of them and restore their fortunes. So it's the picture of what God does for his nation as opposed to what he does for other nations. They're all sinning. He always comes in judgment. But for the other nations, it's judgment, period. For his people, it's judgment unto restoration. Remember our theme for all of our minor prophets, those three words, judgment unto restoration. So God's people would plunder the Moabites, verse nine, chapter 2, verse 9, and they would shake their fists against Assyria's destroyed capital city of Nineveh, chapter two, fifteen. The 15. Uh, the contrast between God's judgment of other nations and his judgment on his own nation. His judgment on other nations is full and final with no prospect of return. His judgment on his own nations always brings with it a remnant, a return, a restoration, because of his promises to Abraham. Still, in effect, until reaching their final benefit, despite the long history of the sin of Abraham's descendants. In fact, when you look at it from heaven, the people of Judah don't look any better than the people of Moab, Ammon, Philistia, take your pick. The people of God don't look any better, any different. He doesn't bless them because they look better, do better, think better, speak better. The difference is not the people. The difference is God himself and the promises he made to his people, to be a God to his people. He always fulfills his purposes, and he's faithful to his word. In fact, when you look at the section of chapter four, ch- chapter 2, verses 4 through 15, it's really a statement of God's universal judgment. He will judge all nations, not just those really tight in the north, south, east, and west of Judah. All nations of the earth he will judge, right? It's intended to support the call to repentance in verse 3. The call to repentance in verse 3 is to all nations of the world, all generations of the world. We are all called to seek God in humility, trust in him, and do his just commands. He's the judge of all nations. He'll be our judge as well. So however, those who are God's people by faith in Jesus, when we face suffering and difficulty, however painful it is, it's never the end of our story. When hard times and challenging circumstances come our way, we're never simply... Receiving what we deserve as sinners, that's never the interpretation of what we're facing. On the contrary, when we face trials as God's people, they are tools that God is using to purify and restore us so we don't have to face ultimate judgment, which is actually what we deserve. Our suffering is itself redemptive, is itself sanctifying, is itself mercy in God's hands. We can receive the glorious inheritance he's promised to us in Jesus Christ one day in the future. But until then, we receive in our pain and brokenness the Lord being mindful of us, chapter 2, 7. He comes to us as a good shepherd and makes us lie down in green pastures, chapter 2, verse 15. Or you might remember Psalm 23, verse 2, makes us lie down in green pastures. It's the, the shepherd, the good shepherd for his people. So God's judgment in its most terrifying form took place at the cross of Jesus. And there the Lord's terrifying vengeance was unleashed on his own son in the most painful action and punishment of all time. So there at Calvary, Jesus received God the Father's fearsome wrath against our pride, our idolatry. Same as what we see in these nations as what we see in God's own people and in ourselves all the enemies of Jesus hissed at him and shook their fists at him, a quote from chapter 2, verse 15, as if he were some evil warrior receiving just punishment from the Holy God for some unspeakable crimes against humanity. But at that very moment, while Jesus was on that cross, he was actually committing the greatest act of love toward humanity, bearing the just judgment of the Holy God in place of his people. So the humble... God honoring obedience of Jesus is now credited to our account. We take my awful report card which says FFFFF and i replace it with Jesus awesome report card which says A-A-A-A-A, and that's how i appeared before the school principal God himself right it's his righteousness credited to us as if i was the one who obeyed as if you were the one who obeyed that's what enables us to see the prospect of the final day of judgment with a sense of peace. When we read the day of the Lord across Zephaniah or across the minor prophets, across the major prophets, the day of the Lord doesn't strike a chill down our spine. It inspires an eagerness in our hearts. Yes, bring that day. Yes, come quickly, Lord Jesus, is our response. Right? The judge of all the earth has freely forgiven us for Christ's sake. Our sins are already atoned. So the judge himself has become our loving Heavenly Father. So this great salvation pulls us toward God. The great salvation in the middle of fearsome judgment makes us slower to judge one another, slower to condemn ourselves. And there's a judge of all the earth, and it's not me, it's not you, it's not us. Our vision is so often clouded, there's so much we don't know. However, when human justice fails, we're free to leave those acts in the hands of the true judge, and we pray for those who have hurt us. Imagine those in Judah praying for all the enemies who are attacking them and hurting them, right? Asking God would bring them to deep and sincere repentance. We can ask God to take the the wrong deeds of the world and bring unexpected good out of them, which he's able to do. We always trust the judge of all the earth will do what's right. There's no condemnation for us who are in Christ. We have peace with God through Jesus, so it can't be God punishing us The same peace is offered to every person in every nation. Those who once were far off from God now have the gospel preached to them and by grace can experience this same peace of God that we experience. Jews and Gentiles alike, broken and sinful, can be humbled and gathered into his presence through true worship by faith. Such believers are not judged or cast out forever, but share in a joyful celebration that God has prepared for us. So we turn the page now to chapter 3 and study that celebration. Fascinating as you turn the page now to chapter 3. The third chapter begins with more judgment. Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. The city is rebellious and defiled. See it? Verse 1, Woe to her who is rebellious and defiled, the oppressing city. It's fascinating that as we turn the page to chapter 3, our author, Zephaniah, did not identify what city is coming under judgment. Woe to what city? Uh, What city is rebellious and defiled? What city is oppressing its residents? Hmm. Look at chapter 2, verse 13, just a few verses prior. Ordinarily, when you study English and grammar, right, you have a a noun, a, a proper noun, and then when it says he or it, Later, it refers back to that. So you would think, chapter, 13, chapter 2, verse 13, God will stretch out his hand against the north and destroy Assyria, and he will make Nineveh a desolation, a dry waste like the desert. So we think we're talking about Nineveh, right? Nineveh is the proper pronoun. And then when you get to chapter 3, verse 1, her, woe to her. We think we're talking about Nineveh, right? Wouldn't you think ordinarily, grammatically, that you're talking about Nineveh? Nineveh. <laughs> What's beautiful, what's absolutely poetically, astoundingly beautiful in the way that Zephaniah is put together is that there has been a switch of subjects. It's not Nineveh, it's Jerusalem. And it becomes more and more clear as the next verses unfold. But Zephaniah didn't write that at first. It's kind of a little trick. At first, the reader might think the rebellious and defiled city is Nineveh, the capital of Assyria, and yet it gradually becomes more and more clear. Zephaniah has turned now, and he's talking about us. He's talking about Jerusalem, God's own people. And this was done why? Just to show how skilled he is in poetry? It's done to emphasize what I said a moment ago. The capital city of God's nation has become so similar to Nineveh and to the capital cities of other nations all around her, that to look at it from the holy God's perspective, it looks no different. How does it look? Rebellious and defiled, an oppressing city. Woe to her, deserving the same judgment in Jerusalem as they got in Nineveh. The way God looks at it, everybody's a sinner, and it's all wrong. The people of God were not living differently? The people of God were not living holy lives. The people of God were not seeking God. The people of God were living like the world. They were living like Nineveh in Jerusalem. Do you see the point? And it, it's actually beautiful poetry, but a sad truth. The city of Jerusalem was rebellious and defiled. Jerusalem oppresses her inhabitants. We go on to verse 2. She refused to trust the Lord or listen to his voice or receive correction or draw near to her God. Notice that in verse 2, draw near to her God. That's how you know it's already Jerusalem. Verse 3, all the various leaders who were supposed to stand up for what was right were corrupt. Verse 3, the officials and judges. Verse 4, the prophets and priests were treacherous, profane, and violent. Yet in verse 5, the righteous Lord remained within her. He didn't remain within Nineveh. We're talking about Jerusalem. He remained within Jerusalem, within Jerusalem. So let me read it all together, verses 1 to 5. Remember, we're talking about Jerusalem, surprisingly. Woe to her who is rebellious and defiled, the oppressing city. She listens to no voice. She accepts no correction. She does not trust in the Lord. She does not draw near to her God. Her officials within her are roaring lions. Her judges are evening wolves that leave nothing till the morning. Her prophets are fickle, treacherous men. Her priests profane what is holy. They do violence to the law. The Lord within her is righteous. He does no injustice. Every morning he shows forth his justice. Each dawn he does not fail, but the unjust knows no shame. What's happening here? Since all the city leaders of Jerusalem were corrupt, there's little hope of change. Since those who were set in place as guardians and guides were set in evil ways, and the people were following them like wandering sheep being led into wrong ways. Verse 6, all of God's judgments to the other nations and cities that had no citizens living in them, it's surprising that Jerusalem learned nothing from the fall of Nineveh. How can you learn nothing from the fall of Gaza and Ashkelon and Ashdod? Come on, guys. Jerusalem, hello. Jerusalem, wake up. You have a holy God. He just got done destroying everything north, south, east, and west of you. You might want to take this moment to turn to him and straighten things out, right? It's the Holy God coming in wrath and judgment saying, I'm not going to treat you special and different. I'm going to ask you to be holy like I called you to be holy and like I'm holy. And if you're not holy, then we have to square off, right? Verse 7, surely you will fear me, he says. So verses 6 and 7 spell out this problem. Like, why doesn't Jerusalem learn something? Verse 6, I have cut off nations. Their battlements are in ruins. I have laid waste their streets, so that no one walks in them. Their cities have been made desolate, without a man, without an inhabitant. I said, verse 7, Surely you will fear me, he sang to Jerusalem. You will accept correction. Then your dwelling would not be cut off, according to all that I have appointed against you. But all the more they were eager to make all their deeds corrupt. Boy, now what? Instead of being humbled, instead of being convicted and watching God's judgment happen in real time, by devastating events in countries surrounding them, the leaders of Jerusalem simply became more and more corrupt themselves. Where's the fear of God? Now, what about the average person living in Jerusalem? We've, we've picked on the leaders. What about the average citizen in Jerusalem, right? Should they be given over to despair now? Nothing in their city or situation will ever change. Remember from verse 5 that God was in Jerusalem? God was showing his right ways every day. So the rather correct response for the average citizen of Jerusalem was not despair. What is it instead then? Rather to wait for the Lord. Look at verse 8. He's speaking now to every person in Jerusalem. Therefore wait for me, declares the Lord. For the day when I rise up to seize the prey, for my decision is, To gather nations, to assemble kingdoms, to pour out upon them my indignation, all my burning anger, for in the fire of my jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed. So, the right way to cope as a citizen of ancient Jerusalem was to keep on patiently waiting for the Lord, who will at the proper time bring justice on the world, yes, but also a rescue to his remnant, because the day of the Lord always includes both justice on the world, salvation, rescue for his remnant. Uh, similar to average citizen today, citizen of the kingdom of God. Should we be discouraged? Should we be given to despair? Galatians 6 9, let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. God is saying, I'm on the throne, I'm monitoring all of this, and we'll all be made right in the end. Knowing that, you continue to wait for me and hope in me, right? The presence of the Lord in the city was a ray of hope for believers. Meanwhile, the presence of the Lord in the city was a constant reminder to unbelievers that there will come, inevitably, a day of reckoning for you. One day God will call everyone to account for their behavior. So the presence of the Lord in the city does both things. It reminds the evil that they're going to have to answer to him, and it reminds the faithful that he's coming, and that he is monitoring, and that he cares for us. So move then to verses 9 through 20. Um, this is perfect. We've got 10 minutes left, and this is the, the climax of the, of the book. <clears throat> so the end of the book of fierce judgment, we find surprisingly good news. Uh, the coming day of the, uh, God's intervention of the world would be more than judgment and destruction. It would also be a day of rescue and in-gathering. And significantly, not just for the faithful within Jerusalem and Judah, but also for a wider group of humanity from various nations. So uh, verses chapter 3, verses 9 through 13, my heading on your outline is promising a purified remnant people. So when God comes, he will, as verse 9 says, transform the speech of the nations. What does that mean? Well, the nations are cursing God. That's what they're using their speech to do, to curse God. Well, he'll transform that. Instead, they'll praise God. Anyone who's cursing God is an unbeliever living in any nation, and when they're transformed they brought from darkness to light. They're brought from cursing to praising his name. So they, they call on him now with trusting hearts in the very covenant name of the Lord their God. People become his people, even within various other nations. They'll be united with God's people of faith then from God's own city, Jerusalem. And when he calls people, gathers them from all places on the earth, they will gather together in order to join voices in praising him rather than cursing him. And so... Uh, they will submit to God and serve the Lord with their speech, with their behavior and their life's energy. Even the people of God have been exiled far away through God's judgment on their sins will also return home, having been mercifully chast- chastened and wonderfully transformed through their sufferings. So their former eagerness to sin will be replaced by an eager desire to unite in worship of the Lord. In the place of their former pride, they now have, will be humble and lowly, displacing their former inability to feel shame now I'll be contrite in spirit and changed in disposition and lifestyle. So, verse 9. At that time, I'll change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech, that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. From beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshipers, the daughter of my dispersed ones shall bring my offering. On that day, you shall not be put to shame because of the deeds by which you have rebelled against me. For then I will remove from your midst your proudly exultant ones, and you shall no longer be haughty or prideful in my holy mountain. But I will leave in your midst a people humble and lowly. They shall seek refuge in the name of the Lord. Those who are left in Jeru- Israel, they shall do no injustice and speak no lies, nor shall there be found in their mouth a deceitful tongue, for they shall graze and lie down. And none shall make them afraid. The graze and lie down are imagery borrowed from chapter 2, verse 7, if you remember. He's still being the shepherd, causing his people to be fed and to be at peace and safety. So then verses uh, 14 to 17, people rejoicing in rescue. Because of the promise of verse 13, they will graze and lie down. The believer's wise steps of being humble and trusting in the Lord to take action is not merely a grim pathway to be endured because there's no alternative. Rather, the understanding of God's promised care Here should lead those people to be joyful and exuberant in their praise. Listen to verse 14. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. How are they supposed to do that when these are citizens who live in the middle of a city that has no good leaders, no good prophets, no good priests, no no good kings? Because of the Lord move right past all those human leaders up to God and put their, their hope in him alone. How can suffering people rejoice? People in a broken world that's railing against God, cursing God, and not yet under God's corrective judgment because the righteous king is coming and he will surely come. That's how suffering people rejoice. And when he comes and finally dwells within the midst of his people, he will not come in angry judgment against us Verse 15 reinforces that. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. What what, what beautiful statements of praise and consolation that even the legitimate charges that we had, the sins that we did, guilty, that stood against us before heaven have been dropped because of Jesus' crucifixion. Our enemies have been silenced once and for all. David and Zephaniah agree, as Psalm 23, written by David, rejoices. When the Lord is my shepherd, I will fear no evil. That's what he said here in verse 15. You shall never again fear. Verse 16 repeats the message. On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, fear not, O Zion, let not your hands grow weak. Remember that was on your quiz, let not your hands grow weak. And verse 17, the Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you. With gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He, God, will exalt over you with loud singing. Who's singing now? The Lord God is singing because he gets to redeem you. He redeems us and he's singing over us. I'm so glad. Get, I don't know what the song is, right? God redeems us and sings over us. So instead of us being um, in ourselves strong, mighty, noble, and accomplished people, that God might look upon all of our good stuff and save us because we're good enough. We are outcasts, lame, weak, broken, and yet we mourn over the spiritual condition of ourselves and others, and we look to God alone for restoration. He restores us. He sings over us. And then he says this, join me in song. Join me in my song. Sing the song with me. Verse 18, God says, I will gather those of you who mourn for the festival, They're mourning because there's no longer a festival of worship to God. They're mourning over that. Those are the genuine, humble people seeking God's praise. I'll gather those of you who mourn for the festival so that you will no longer suffer reproach. And I want you to notice in verse 18 to the end, seven times he says, I will. Um, The seventh one you might miss because when it says in verse 20, when I gather you together, that's an I will gather you together. I will, I will, I will, I will, I will. This is the stated intention and promises of God. I will gather those of you who mourn for the festival. Uh, verse nineteen. I will deal with all your oppressors. I will save the lame and gather the outcast. I will change their shame into praise. Verse twenty. I will, pr- I will bring you in. I will gather you together. I will make you renowned and praised among all the peoples of the earth. When I restore your fortunes before your eyes, says the Lord. So a lesson in the book of Zephaniah. God himself reminds us that in the ruins and rubble of the life in which we live in a broken world right around us right now are not the end of our story. The injustices that we suffer are very real and very painful for us to endure now, but they don't have the final word. That God sees it and that he has actions promised that are coming. I will, I will, I will. Our brokenness, our own sin... Our shame are also very real, but they're not the end of our story either. They bring difficult consequences in the meantime, but there's a brighter tomorrow. There's a day that's coming. It's about to dawn that brings hope of a new situation and a new you. And the, the pain of suffering has accomplished a new you through God's tools. You've been remade in God's workshop for better holiness, more consistent justice, a finer righteousness. I Remember those pins? Please be patient with me. God is not finished with me yet. Those who are old enough know exactly what I'm talking about. Um, God is not finished with you yet, not finished with your marriage, your family, your coworkers, your neighbors, your church, your denomination, or your world. Eventually, God's going to take severe action to bring you justice, justice for everyone, a full and final rescue for those who have found deliverance in Christ. At the end of our weary and painful pilgrimage through this world, God will bring us home. And there's the reason to burst into song, to join God in song, because Christ is singing for us. You know, Victor Hugo's play Les Miserables, a group of students rally in the 19th century Paris, hoping and dreaming of a new day, trying to make it happen. The revolution fails. The majority of the students are killed. The remaining alive people wonder what they had accomplished at all. It's the story of a thousand failed hopeful people who tried a thousand different things to take it into their own hands to make a change. How do we know that the vision of Zephaniah is different and true? We look to the New Testament to fulfill the hopeful message we saw in Zephaniah, and there at the bottom of your page are, are various New Testament themes from Zephaniah that we see repeated in the New Testament. For example, the impending judgment day of the Lord. Jesus suffered the divine judgment of the day of the Lord, and he left The heavenly place of safety to come here to live truly vulnerably and then even unto death, face not just real danger but real death. And then the warrior God coming with his armies to execute judgment. We see that from here all the way to the last book of the Bible, Revelation 19, that he's a warrior God. And then the sacrifice prepared by the Lord. We see that next line on your handout there as the sacrifice of God is the Lord Jesus Christ himself. He's the Lamb of God. And lastly, a suffering and singing Savior. I'm In the middle, middle chapters uh, towards the end of uh, Isaiah, uh, talk about Jesus as the suffering servant, but he's also the singing servant, the singing Savior. He suffered at the hands of men and beating and crucifixion, be abandoned by God the Father. He was alone to suffer in darkness, not because he was a failure, but because we are failures. We're rebellious and defiled, but Jesus paid for our sins. We're, we're fickle and treacherous, but he was wounded for our wrongs. So whenever we suffer in this world as God's people, we know we have a Savior who understands, a Savior who redeems, and at the end of the day, the Savior who sings over us and invites us to join in his song. And our many sins rise up to condemn us as guilty ones, for we have done wrong. We have Jesus advocating for us, who took upon himself our deserved condemnation and ensures we are freed from the burden forever, and he welcomes us into his loving arms. So all nations will be blessed to worship our God because our, our God delights in us even into bursting into song for us. So, the message of Zephaniah. I'm two minutes over, let's pray. Our Father, how we thank you for every word, every paragraph. And